You're listening to the Poetry of Impact podcast, illuminating the unheard stories of today's top leaders in impact with your host, Gino Borges. Welcome back, everyone, to the Poetry of Impact podcast. Joining us today are Josh Bernstein and Brett Howell. Josh is an explorer, educator, and storyteller, and the chair and founder of the First Light Group of Companies, a hybrid between for-profit and non-profit entities that elevate programming and content. Brett is the founder and executive director of Howell Conservation Fund, driving breakthrough solutions at the intersection of business, nonprofit, and philanthropy. In this episode, we dive into the importance of spending time in the wild and turning off the constant influx of light, sound, and information to allow the soul to express itself, and how getting outside, even in our own backyard, can inspire profound changes in how we relate to the natural world around us. As world travelers, Brett and Josh share some of their personal strategies for staying centered while being in motion. They also share how they each cultivate a curiosity-driven approach to collaborations across cultures in order to come at the planet's most pressing issues from a place of engagement, innovation, and solution, rather than a fear-based focus on the problem. Mostly, I love how these two out-of-the-box thinkers manage to transcend categories in their front country work and create hybrid platforms that call upon diverse models of problem solving. So with that, Drop in and enjoy the show with Josh Bernstein and Brett Howell. Hi, everybody. This is Gino Borges with the Poetry of Impact podcast. I'm here with Josh Bernstein and Brett Howell. Thanks so much, guys, for joining. It's been quite the journey to get you all scheduled. Man, thanks so much to Nexus and David Dietz to help coordinate the efforts. We are missing Tilly Walton today, who is intending to join us, but hopefully we can have her journey shared with us as well at some point in the future. In the meantime, Josh and Brett have incredible stories in the conservation space, but that's just focused on, you know, the kind of work that they're doing. They're also special souls in terms of how reflective they are, in terms of the amount of achievement that they've already accomplished, but then also a very reflective capacity in terms of the work that they're doing in the world. So with that, I want to just give Josh and Brett an opportunity to share a little bit about the work that they're doing, and then we'll dive more into their journey and their reflective process. And interestingly enough, during our talk, before we jumped live on the call, we were already talking about rituals and processes, which if you've listened to the podcast before, that's often a repetitive and recurring feature of a lot of our podcast guests. So with that in mind, uh, Josh, would you like to jump in and share a little bit about the work that you're doing in the world? Sure. Happy to. Thanks, Gino. Nice to be here. Nice to see you, Brett, also. I define myself as an explorer, educator, storyteller, and my work revolves around that trifecta. So I'm either exploring the world and traveling, telling stories, as I did for History Channel and Discovery Channel for many years as a host, and then as a producer, now executive producing a feature film. I'm about to finish. I'm leaving for Rwanda tomorrow to finish a feature film on rhinos and wildlife conservation, focusing on a solution rather than a problem. That's a big philosophical point for me and my production companies that we we tend not to focus on what's wrong in the world, but spotlight what's working well and how do we amplify that. So lots going on right now. Thanks, Josh and Brett. Yeah, similarly, thanks so much for the opportunity to be here. Absolute pleasure to connect and share across the Nexus and other communities. For me, really, everything I work on is at the intersection of business and the environment. And the organization I founded, Howell Conservation Fund, 
we really focus on finding breakthrough conservation solutions. So like Josh said, I think there's enough kind of negativity out in the world about some things that don't work. We try to really focus on finding the solutions that do work. And we focus on trying to solve some of the largest planetary issues there are, such as what do we do with plastic production globally? How do we stop wildlife from having challenges with it? And one area I'm really focusing on right now is going back to my special place, Henderson Island. Uh, it's part of the British Overseas Territory. If anybody knows the HMS Bounty in that story, it's the Pitcairn Islands, which are direct descendants of the mutineers in the HMS Bounty. And because of ocean currents and other challenges with our linear waste streams, one of their islands, which is uninhabited, it's a World Heritage Site, is the world's most plastic polluted beach. I went in 2019. That was life-changing. We were able to raise the story and human consciousness about that. Some things on the expedition didn't go right, and we're going back in 2024 to finish the job. Thanks, Brett. What does it mean to make that distinction between saying that we're into solutions and not problems? I sense that that comes from a bit of agony in your past, in some case, or reflecting on what others are doing. Can you give me a sense of how you make that distinction between like, uh, we're focused on solutions. At what point does one group move from being a awareness around a problem to making it like we're solution-based? So I look at it more through the lens, the experience that I've had in the world and how we can address environmental challenges, how we can look at solutions, right? And everything I've really done is through this lens of environmental entrepreneurship going back more than 10 years now when I pivoted to focusing fully on conservation and sort of business conservation through that lens. I was originally trained out of a group with Montana, which was all about how do you look at property rights and markets as a way to drive conservation good. And then I kind of took my own frame of that, had the opportunity to work with some of the world's largest venture philanthropists, go travel the world, kind of see hands-on what works in different areas, and really came to the conclusion that, in my opinion, in my organization's opinion, to kind of solve these things, we need to look at solutions-focused opportunities, right? It's not enough to just say, hey, we should educate people about this. It's not enough to just have policy, though enabling policy is really important. So we as an organization have doubled down on this idea that let's go find global solutions. Let's find the innovators wherever they are on the planet, help lift them up, help lift their ideas, launch their ideas, really as a venture philanthropy model. Josh, you want to take a stab at that? As much as I appreciate respect, and I know we require the intellectual sort of scientific approach right, to both the storytelling and the solutions-driven piece, there is an emotional piece that is not as cerebral or intellectual as much as from your heart. And I think that's the piece of engagement when it comes to storytelling, because I think that to, in order to engage an audience, and I've, and I've said this for about 20 years, one of the failures of the green movement yeah. is its inability to connect with people emotionally other than through fear. Like, we're all going to die. Climate change is killing us. Oceans are going to run. But, but where is the engagement from a heart-centered space of let's create something that's more humanity-focused? Let's create a sustainable relationship with our planet, a connection with our community. Because as a storyteller, I think that's critical if we're going to educate and engage and, and then create change. Yeah, 
Josh, basically translation is that we don't need another white paper on climate change, essentially. Or <laughs> No, we don't need another white paper. And we also don't need a white savior or any savior. There's no single person that's going to come forward and help us reach a sustainable future. It's a collective. It has to be a community-based effort. And so the more we can do for collaboration and community building, the better success our movements would have. So was there a pivot, Josh, in your lifetime where you moved into the storytelling? Or is it always you were leading with that and always the warrant was on you to say, hey, this is really about story is the vehicle, not so much science and needs to be in front? Or is there, was there a moment in time where you realized that like, look, even though I'm trained in X, really, I need to be moving into this direction in order for X to be actualized. Yeah, I think there was a point I could uh, locate. When I was, for 25 years, I ran a survival school in Southern Utah, working my way up from apprentice, well, student to apprentice to instructor to marketing director and then CEO for 17 years. It's called BOSS, Boulder Outdoor Survival School. And it's still in existence, but I, I sold my ownership role about 10 years ago. But when I was at the school leading trips with my staff, but leading trips for you know, 10, 15 clients at a time, people who came from around the world to learn how to live in harmony with the earth, using like how to make fire without matches and build shelters out of the forest and very native skills. I discovered that as much as I loved influencing or impacting a few hundred people in a given summer season, when I transitioned to television, and started working for, at that point, History Channel on a series called Digging for the Truth, I realized that all of a sudden I had one to two million people tuning in every week. In just the U.S., I can't speak to the numbers outside the U.S., but I know it was a huge series for history at the time. Very adventure archaeology, admittedly, Indiana Jones style of storytelling, <laughs> which is captivating. But yeah. as long as, as like, like my point earlier on engagement, once you have an audience that's engaged, then you can take them on a deeper dive into the educational underpinnings of the environment or archaeology or sustainability. Or, but that insight for me about engagement came really as a result of watching the, the Nielsen ratings. Like, how do we tell a good story? What works? If we did 55 documentaries, which one's rated the best? Egypt shows were always very popular. Biblical shows were always very popular. Uh, doing shows on the Ark of the Covenant or the Holy Grail, of course, very popular. But finding an engagement point that would resonate with folks, capturing them through that, and then deepening the relationship over time. Because I, I think one of my goals as a host, when I am hosting shows, is to be a conduit to the experts. I don't have to have, the, the beauty of my role is I don't have to be an expert. I just have to have a, a good question for the expert. And so my curiosity-driven approach uh, gives viewers a chance to learn without a threat of, I'm not a talking head saying, you must do this and you must do that. It's more of a, let's go on a journey and learn together which is why these solutions that we're talking about can be more accessible to folks because people have questions. And there's a lot of folks who have a lot of you know, perhaps fear or anxiety and they're like, please just tell me what to do. But having a conversation with experts on the front lines of climate or oceans or whatever, like now I'm working for, with NASA on space stories, that's just, we give audiences a chance to engage more deeply through that sort of pedagogy that I'm outlining. Thanks, Josh. Brett, you were sharing a little bit toward the end. Was there something you want to recap? And I'm going to circle back on what Josh was talking about. Uh, I have a series of follow-ups for him, but I wanted to give you a chance to, you know, to finish your response. Ultimately, agree with Josh's approach here. I think we're both kind of trying to say the same thing, right? Which is that it's through storytelling that you get to collaboration, right? Everything that Obviously, we all grow, we learn throughout our journey as humans, life, what we're doing personally, professionally, et cetera. And 
I've long ago came to the conclusion that deep collaboration is how we're going to look at how we're going to solve these challenges, how we can find these individuals, how we can lift each other up. You know, it's really the beauty of community. As Josh said, there's no one person that's going to be a savior in all of this. And it's through working collectively and collaboratively that we'll solve these issues. So that's sort of the theme, I would say. So Josh, I was down in Flagstaff, Arizona, just north of Flagstaff, uh, many years ago doing a six-week survival training out in the desert. And what I remember most about that, besides the skill sets that you were talking about in terms of building shelter and basically keeping your body temperature at 98.6 degrees when, I mean, people ask me, what's it about? It's like, everything's all about keeping your body temperature. You don't want to get too hot and you don't want to get too cold. But what I remember most on a visceral and somatic level was the campfires that we had every night. Why? Because there was kind of a, we created a field essentially. And this field of 12 of us were together every night. And what would come up around, it's all story, right? And the story gets amplified just because you're surrounded by darkness and the only light is between you and the communion that you're forming. In this case, with one or two million, is the modern day postmodern campfire the media? like a mediated image? I mean, is this the storytelling moment that we're talking about? I mean, we're going from analog to kind of a mediated moment of the campfire. And what's gained is the scale that you talked about, the one to two million. But what are some of the limitations also of media? How do you know it's not just a white sugar hit of just a little bit of like at a biochemical level, but how do I know the agency is actually going to happen as a result of this storytelling engagement? Like, how do you counter or assess the ripple effect of the mediated, you know, moment of, you know, all of us around the fire? I want to go back and find out who are you with North of Flag? Were you with Cody Lundin? No, no, but okay. I actually read Cody's book. No, it was Ancient Pathways. Yep. And gosh, I'm spacing, but his first name was Tony. He's a really good soul. Gosh, he'll actually come to me in a moment. Nestor? Tony Nestor? Yes. Yeah. Okay. It's a small industry. Yeah, of course. So we tend to know, especially when I was living out West, we know all the you know bosses. A lot of our students have gone elsewhere now to become instructors at other places. So Tony, Cody, there's a short list of people that are guiding and teaching. And it's nice to know that I'm assuming the quality you had was awesome. It was amazing. Yeah. There's nothing like, and you know, the thermodynamics piece is sort of the essence of maintaining survival in the short term, because if you freeze or overheat, especially in a desert, you're done. As far as the fire, I mean, you know, fire in and of itself, it's an element, right? There is a spiritual quality. There's a larger sense of beingness when you're staring at a campfire. Now, does that translate to the light coming off of a television or a screen? I don't know. Maybe there's some aspect about light coming in that with moving images that checks that box. It's unfortunate because I think that fire's are, are much more holistic in the, in the impact they have on our, on our souls. But if we do focus on the storytelling through a visual medium that is a screen, there still is a wide range of nutritious content. There's a lot of crap. There's a lot of junk food being served through screens. Most of it, actually, I would say. You know, the algorithms that drive social media engagement are not driven by what's going to make you smarter. It's, going to, it's driven by what's going to make you responsive, which may require anger, or it may require fear, it may require whatever emotion is going to get you to engage. And so I don't think that most of the storytelling that, that I watch 
Uh, and again, I was working for history and discovery at a time between 2003 and 2009 before social media was so algorithm. It wasn't even existent back then. So the storytelling, the BBC style of five act arc storytelling in a one hour doc was very much nutrition oriented. Like we worked really hard to make sure every expert was well represented and that the stories were, were driven from extensive amount of months and months of research. And we took the time three weeks per show. That doesn't happen anymore. It just became, first of all, everyone has a phone with a camera that they can record video with. Everyone, the sort of the selfie narcissistic transition over the last 10 years has changed the storytelling on both sides, right? How we transmit stories and create them as content creators and how we receive them as content consumers. And I don't know that it's for the best. One of the reasons that I have my own production company now is that I can then control the quality level. And I won't say it's not always easy. I have to re-educate the people we work with, even right now, like with NASA. I just say, yeah, you could do it that way, or you could do it this way and create a higher level. And especially, this is especially the case when we work in education. This is another critical piece of, of our pedagogy at First Light, is that STEM education requires an intentionality to how are we going to educate children and influence their thinking processes. You can't be casual about that. You know, there has to be a, a logic model, a sort of theory of change, how are you going to be influencing minds through medium, whether that's TV or internet. And so I'm, I'm very particular about that. I don't think it's a happenstance. Let's just see what happens. Let's put a camera on someone and see what happens. That reality show style works for sensational ratings, the sort of junk food ratings, but that doesn't, that's not a service to important issues and solutions is where, you know, where we started at. So I argue we raised the bar. Yeah, for sure. I guess what I'm also getting at is this whole notion of providing people with a visceral response that you can only get by being outdoors versus the indoor experience, the indoor world and the outdoor world. And I read some crazy stat the other day. And again, I'll take it with a grain of salt, but people are spending more than 95% of their time indoors. And you know, I'm a guy that I get up, I really believe in circadian biology, and I'm out barefoot on the lawn. I do my ice bath and workout, and I'm staring at the sun first thing in the morning. I'm outside for about two hours every morning, and how it fundamentally alters my chemistry, my sleep patterns. It like it gets it dialed in at so many levels. And sometimes I wonder if the solution is merely like just helping people freaking get outside. I mean, just get outside and just take in all the magic that's just by being outside. So Brett, with that. Yeah, that's quite the tee up. Certainly, I think, you know, I very much appreciate the fact I have the opportunities that I have to be outside. Everything I work on is conservation based, right? And yeah, sure, we all end up sometimes spending more time on email and laptops than we would like. But at the end of the day, for me, it's vitally important to go find nature wherever that is. If that's urban nature when I'm in Atlanta and walking around areas that have been protected by those before me, where you know, you're gonna have hawks, squirrels, that sort of thing, to oceans, which, you know, is an area I really focus on the most. You know, Josh was talking about kind of campfires and some of that visceral feeling. For me, with the work I've done, a lot of it is the calming, restorative, et cetera, nature of oceans, right? I mean, this is no surprise, people have PhDs and kind of this new sort of new area, you know, how does water impact the human experience? How can you heal through that? How does it bring you along, right? So I likewise agree that being outside is incredibly important. Not sure if there's anything else you kind of wanted to riff on there. 
Both of you have traveled to probably some incredible places, a lot more incredible places. As And when I speak of incredible, I'm not speaking of like some big urban landscape. You guys go to some freaking wild spaces. Like, and that's one of the things in my 30s, I discovered that, wow, at a very Jungian psychology perspective, we need a sense of wildness to come through us and for the soul to actually express itself in certain contexts. And at first, I want to ask you two questions. What's it like to leave the urban landscape and f- be occupied, entrenched in a purely wild space? And then two, when you come back home and reflect on that in some capacity or making sense of it through story for others, do you realize that is there kind of a reality? It's like, shit, there's seven and a half billion people on the earth we're losing wild spaces rapidly given the kind of ideology of industrial colonialism and and so forth and consumption and and just the way we live as humans, sentient humans on earth. So explore that notion of wildness because you guys have a unique access to it on a regular basis. Lots of different varieties too, Josh and Brett. I mean, you guys have been, like I said, talking about top one percentiles, one percent of one percentiles in terms of your guys' access to wild spaces. So would love for you to just kind of drop in on that theme of wildness. Yeah, absolutely. I think especially this year for me, wildness has been incredibly important. You know, spend most of my time in Atlanta right now. Grew up in San Diego, California. I've had a lot of opportunities this summer to be by the ocean, reflecting, kind of having, yes, it's sort of urban ocean, of course, in San Diego, right? But also to go on this amazing river trip that Tilly organized where Josh and I were both invited to be there. I think that's probably an accessible wildness in a sense. Not many take advantage of it. We had the opportunity to talk some on that trip about, you know, people that look, it's disproportionately accessible for whites versus, you know, anybody else. That's also been the story of the conservation movement. And I think it's absolutely incredible that we are finally focusing on DEI in that space and really making some progress. Anybody should be able to get out as far as we did. But for me to be able to turn off, in my case, all the electronics, really appreciate Josh not doing that so we could have some of his amazing photos and whatnot from the trip. But to be able to turn off the phone, take off the Fitbit, take off the ring tracker, and just kind of truly disconnect and be out there and see the starscapes and really not have the light pollution and kind of let your mind go and kind of going back to some of what you were talking about with social media and other things, kind of let your brain truly chill out from all those different inputs we get on a daily basis and hit a flow state where your soul really can deeply connect into nature, which many of us had some beautiful experiences on this trip doing. I think that's what makes it so unique. I feel incredibly fortunate. I've been able to travel the places I have through the projects I've done. But at the end of the day, coming back to your point, this is achievable for many if you set that intention and go out and do it. You don't have to be as remote as a Grand Canyon. You can accomplish this yourself with intentionality of turn your phone off and go for a walk in whatever nature qualifies that's near you. And if you have the opportunity to get on a plane and think through it, You can also have some fantastic impacts for conservation, innovation, different things we're talking about. So those are just a few thoughts. Nice thoughts. I agree with everything Brett's just said. I think that one of the 
disservices of the industrialized civilization and the path we've walked on for the last 200 years is this removal from isolation from wilderness, which is really ultimately in isolation from our own humanity. I think that, you know, one of the things that we used to, well, we may still teach it at the survival school, but I'm not on the trail anymore. But I used to say <laughs> when I was that I personally don't change my outlook on life, whether I'm on the trail, you know, sleeping under the sage on the sagebrush or on the river, as Brett was saying, or on the mountains or in the city. I look at myself as a human who has needs, visceral needs to connect with the earth all the time. I live in New York City, but I'm a few blocks from Central Park right now. So I know that I can go to the park and reconnect and reground. You're talking, Gino, earlier about like, you know, you're earthing, you're grounding with the planet every day, looking at the sunrises or the sunsets and feeling a sense of connection. I think that is the biggest missing piece of this hyperactive, technologically driven world, screen driven world, desk driven world that so many of us are opting into or just being a part of. Maybe we didn't realize that we've opted in, but to, to remind ourselves of our humanity uh, is a big part, again, going back to storytelling of how I can model these grand adventures. And maybe, of course, not everyone's going to have the benefit or privilege of going climbing up the Great Pyramid or rappelling into a down a chasm or going into the Amazon. But those are hopefully inspiring stories that get people to say, you know what, I can I can go in my backyard. I can spend the night camping with with my family and the grass or go to a park. And I think that that's been missing in our consumption of everything that the consumer society has to has to offer us. So I'm always hopeful that people can reconnect because the more we can reconnect with the earth and ourselves, the better our community will be. Yeah. What comes up for me is is that in the front country, if I mean you want to get recentered, it takes a certain amount of will to put yourself in that context. But one of the darkest places left in North America is actually in central Nevada, about two and a half hours east of me, this little oh, this little town called Austin. And this whole Central Valley and, you know, the National Geographic always comes out with, you know, the darkness map and it gets worse and worse every year, unfortunately. And every time I'm camping out there, I realize that I have to do nothing. I have to do nothing as I just sit there over three, four days and engage the space. I don't have to meditate. I don't have to read a text like I would have to do in the front country to reset and there's something about being surrounded by space in my context, like big open space, the stars, the fire, and silence as well. I think we woefully underestimate how painfully noisy life is on a regular recurring basis. And not only is it noisy, but how we invite the noisiness in as a, uh, essentially, I think as a form of distraction from our own essence, uh, you know, I mean, to some extent. Also, the, the impact that all that noise has on our central nervous system. And there are studies that have shown that the importance of silence for processing memory and internalizing experiences is critical. And so today, I think people are really gasping for breath in a constant, you know, and we're constantly inundated. And to the point where people feel like they're addicted in a way to the, the constant news stream. Like, oh, I haven't looked at my phone in the last five minutes. Oh, I haven't looked at a screen in the last 20 minutes. There's so much data coming in. And I think it's a detriment to our own physiology, our own sense of self and our sense of calmness because we're hyper-stimulated over and over and over every day. So Josh, with that point, and Brett, with you bringing awareness around plastics, has our cultural production outpaced our evolutionary presence to some extent? Yeah, I mean, going back to, you know, what we talked about with desks, right? I mean, certainly we were not 
built to sit all day in front of screens. It's not, you know, how our bodies are constructed. There's all sorts of things that are proven to be wrong with that. But I think if we look at thematically some of what we're talking about here is people are spending, as you said, what, 95% of their time inside. They're in these highly constructed little ecosystems they've created for themselves. And we've forgotten that at the end of the day, we all rely on ecosystem Earth, right? And if you get outside and understand that natural beauty of it and see both the good and the bad of kind of how we're interacting with the planet, right? It, that's to me what inspires change is through that awareness, through the personal decision to live life differently, through the decision to do things like what you're talking about of spending two hours of your morning outside. I think that's where some of the noise, the excessive electronics, et cetera, can drop away. And really, we can then hear our souls, and our souls are really telling us, hey, where should we be spending our time, our energy, our resources for whatever the vision is, right? I'm a conservationist. I'm thematically focused on what we've talked about. That's not the lens of every human on the planet, right? But whatever your thing is, through silence, through appreciating this, through understanding, you can find that thing and then understand maybe how you can move to action on having whatever impact you're seeking. Josh, you have any thoughts on that dance between our evolutionary inheritance and where we're at as a somatic being versus the cultural production of the collective and history kind of forging forward with all this stuff, whether it's yeah. noise or... Well, I mean, the stuff, the modern stuff, I certainly have thoughts based on the time of running a survival school because we tried to teach you that you didn't need all this stuff. One of the great <laughs> mottos at Boss was the more you know, the less you need. And and how empowering is it to go into the wilderness with just a blanket pack, a knife, water bottle, and your sense of being able to build a shelter, track animals, et cetera, et cetera. But that notion of comfort in the wilderness and the self-reliance is, I think, separate from what we're seeing today in the hyper-technological inundation of media and messaging. And I don't know that we have evolved to take in that fire hose of content every day. And especially since the, as I said before, the algorithms are not driven around beneficence. Like it's not like, hey, let's just do something that's good for the world and make people feel good with some quality that makes everyone feel they can educate themselves. If we took the same energy that we were putting into the sort of the engagement, the algorithms that are driven by fear and put it into ways to make people feel self-empowered or make people feel more self-esteem, that would be wonderful use of technology. But that's not what's happening, right? The companies that control social media and just all media are less altruistic than I would like. So I think that the challenge today is how do we evolve internally? How do we keep our sense of self-centered in a constant storm of media? And that, you know, meditation can help separate door to what if we want to walk through there, but plant medicines, journeying, that can help. Indigenous wisdom, maybe another opportunity for discussion there uh, can help. You know, there are other forms of engaging as humans on the planet, other paths that cultures have walked that aren't the industrial revolution, manifest destiny, Western perspective, patriarchal perspective. And so perhaps those fringe and coming, you know, from the peripheries now into sort of mainstream awareness, if not the mainstream itself, that may help us find a way through because the double-edged sword piece about technology, yeah, it's true that like everyone can reach anyone around the world in a nanosecond. And it's unfortunate that most of that information is fear-driven or misinformation or disinformation. But with the right tweak, with the right sort of sense of empowerment and decision-making, we could use it for good. And then technology becomes an asset. It just hasn't started out that way. Yeah. 
Have you been exposed to much uh, Neil Postman, the philosophy? Of, yeah, okay. I, yeah, I think you would really I have, love. I Google him and look into yeah. it. Neil Postman, yeah. Yeah. He's a famous philosopher of media and wrote some books in the 70s and 80s, but he nailed it, you know, called amusing ourselves to death, uh, technopoly. And the way you're talking, Josh, is straight out of his books. And it's well said. Carl Sagan, too. I mean, a lot of folks saw this coming. The trends are, are pretty clear. It's just who has the ability to motivate a movement for the good of humanity instead of for the good of corporations and the media. Yeah. So you guys were talking a little bit earlier about how much you guys move around the planet. Josh and Brad, I mean, you guys move probably more than most people move around the planet. And we talked about this notion of staying centered and grounded along the way and Josh, you started to hint at a little bit of a rituals and processes that you discovered after doing about 200,000 miles around the earth in some capacity. You realize like, okay, here's a body of practice that travels well with me. I'd like to unpack that a little bit for both you and Brett in terms of how you guys have your personal somatic and mental and cognitive and spiritual technologies that travel with you from space to space. Sure. I'll start, Brett. So yeah, as I was saying before, the first year of sort of professional traveling for at that time history, I flew 130,000 miles through 14 countries to tell 13 different stories. And it was season one as a host, and I knew nothing about hosting. <laughs> I knew nothing about documentary production. I was learning every step of the way, but I was fortunate to have been given then many more years since to sort of you know become the Jedi. But during the early Padawan stages, I was subjected to so many mistakes my own ignorance, just learning the ropes. It was very hard to go through. This was after 9-11. So just going through TSA checks globally, right? Going through so many airports and so many security scans and so many flights. Coach, because, you know, when you're starting in TV, you're flying in the back of the plane. So it was hard until I just relaxed into it. That was the big shift when I was like, you know what? This is my life now. I can't get all worked up over, will my bags show up or will I get the seat I want on the aisle or will the hotel have a quiet room? I just had to relax into let whatever's happening be. And that Zen-like flow made everything better. Now I can laugh through everything. Like you can't, <laughs> you can't phase me in an airport or a hotel or in any country. I don't even mind the jet lag or it's just part of the fun of the travel. But I will say that some of the things that helped me, music, noise canceling headphones are a lifesaver for just trying to find quiet find the right vibe in my playlists, which are very subjective, but I have playlists that help me ramp up or ramp down depending on what I need to do that day. Finding the right nutrition. I've always eaten you know, organically or try to do my best to maintain. It's harder in some countries, but I would say most of the time I eat very well or at least try to. And then chocolate is a, is a <laughs> secret weapon. And the last one, which I know Randolph finds another great explorer or say a great explorer, perhaps the greatest on the planet. He would say a good hot bath a good hot bath can totally reset. I'm a Pisces. So you give me a good hot bath at the end of a day or, and, I, and I'm recharged. That's just how I make things work as an introvert Pisces. <laughs> That's awesome. Brett? Yeah, great input there from Josh as well. I couldn't exactly point to the moment that for me it mentally shifted, but it's very similar, right? Just appreciating the fact that not everybody gets to do this and you can either say, hey, this is fantastic and I'm going to enjoy this ride and make everything of it or I'm going to stress all the small stuff. I don't stress the small stuff anymore. I've been on an incredible journey this year and was able when we were on the bottom of the Grand Canyon really to kind of hit that flow state where you just kind of let everything fall away. So it's 
pretty hard to stress me out on a plane or a hotel or anything these days. Kind of roll with it. Agree. Noise canceling headphones, eye masks are key. At least for me, it's kind of light. It's something that can obviously impact your sleep. I learned long ago when I was bouncing around Micronesia, et cetera, you kind of eat breakfast on the time zone that you're supposed to be on. And at that time, it was like a 32-hour commute flight. So set the clock for where you're going to be. And sometimes you eat breakfast more than once, but it's kind of tricking your body into, hey, this is the time zone you are supposed to be on. And no matter where I am right now, it's time for breakfast, right? And kind of that sort of like game to kind of keep yourself going with that. But I think a lot of it is choosing what you stress yourself out with and what you don't, right? I have every simplified thing you can do, TSA pre-check, clear, just the things that can kind of make the transactions more seamless in a sense, not so much a transaction, but like we have to do with TSA, right? I don't check bags unless there's absolutely no way to avoid it. Some of it's process. I've got one bag that's probably been, I don't know, 200,000 miles or something at this point. And there's sort of like the winter setup and the summer setup and, you know, it fits in there and it's easy. So for me, those are a few of the things. And ultimately coming back to what we talked about, it's appreciating where you're going and taking the time to find something new, find a new culture, understand a place, be by a beach, for example, and find those things that center us as opposed to just saying, hey, I'm in the whirlwind of this travel. Why am I doing this? Right. Speaking of this, I mean, in both contexts that you guys work in, you're probably in position like an authorial leadership position where other people are looking up to you for guidance on which direction and potentially, you know, to go at some point. And maybe there's people around you that are also doing the same to you. I'm particularly curious on how you navigate social relations as you move through, because, you know, I'm a fish in water. Like here I am in North America. I spend the bulk of my time in North America. I'm aware of the invisible cultural patterns of being here. I'm unaware. I mean, this is funny because, but my wife's from Heidelberg, Germany, and that's not like going to South America or Africa by any means. But even there, I notice how kind of disoriented I am by just the invisible social rhythms. And I mean, there's these customs in place. How do you guys kind of navigate that? I mean, Josh, you're off to Rwanda and Brett, you're on, you know, going down to this island in the South Pacific. I mean, these are distinct cultural rhythms that these groups have and these places and the people have. How do you kind of get in that rhythm with the people, you know, who are already embodying those rhythms and here you're just, you're getting off a plane or a boat or a car and dropping in? Yeah, I take the approach of trying not to be that average American, right, where Americans kind of try to bring (laughs) America with them and everybody else has to revolve around us, right? It's like far too common if you sort of see that. We all kind of have seen terrible examples of it, I'm sure, and know what I'm talking about. For me, it's much more get somewhere and listen, be present, the things that we're talking about. Don't just butt in and try to do it your way. You've traveled to wherever it is with intention, hopefully, to learn from new culture, be in nature, do something. So don't assume that what you're doing in the United States is going to be culturally appropriate. And, you know, ask questions, pause before you're speaking and try to really take in whatever that culture is and get accepted by it to the extent you can, depending how long you're there and what it is you're doing. 
as opposed to bringing your belief structure from the United States and assuming it's still going to be valid and accurate. Yeah, I agree. I think it's an unusual role to be a documentary host. And for me, some of the successes I've had in befriending experts and contacts in other countries comes from what Brett's talking about, just listening with a sense of humility and not the sort of the stereotype of the American arrogance that precedes us. But I think over time, uh, thankfully, because my shows were seen all over the world, people could say, oh, I know that guy, or at least I know what that guy is trying to do in his storytelling and in his approach to exploring this mystery. So if I was in Yemen and I was shopping for a jambia, uh, this, the curved sword that's worn at the belt line, and before we went out into the backcountry, I had the good fortune or foresight to pick the jambia of the community I was visiting, because every jambia is different, right? Okay. They're very tribal. And so when we got into a very, honestly, heated discussion on could we or could we not gain access to a sacred archaeological site, they took a look at my jambia and went, that's your passport. You know, well done. <laughs> you honored our culture uh-huh. by picking something that we can resonate with. And so therefore, and I've seen that over and over again in different cultures. I mean, like I said, I've been fortunate to be like even the highlands of Papua New Guinea or deep in the Mato Grosso in Brazil. And every time, and some of this may come from my sort of approach through anthropology or my studies in, in psychology, but I'm not trying to force myself into the relationship. I'm listening first and evaluating and feeling what is the cultural mood and how do I contribute to that in a way that's respectful. And more often than not, not always, because there are some people who just refuse to see what you're trying to do, but more often than not, people will respect that and open up to it and say, okay, you're now welcome. You know, bismillah, come in, come in, and then let's now have a conversation. And so that humility, that open-mindedness, the ability to be, for me, self-deprecating. I may tell jokes on my shows, but it's always at my expense, never an expert's. And also the integrity with which I want to go into points of cultural pride gives these cultures and countries a chance to say, this guy is American, yeah, but he's celebrating us. How wonderful. And because of that, the world will, will get to know our story better. So it's a privilege to be able to play that game and and hopefully successfully communicate through that approach. Those are beautiful responses. I loved every bit of it. And while I was listening to you, something else came up. It's like, okay, so Josh and Brett go into these spaces of different social rhythms and they have their approaches, but Josh and Brett also exist in front country North America world, which demands a certain amount of performance and metrics and does count time and does have schedules and does have benchmarks. And so how do you guys kind of navigate the reality of like, uh, shit, I don't have all day here. I don't have all week. I don't have all month to establish that presence because you know, in the background, you're also a part of a production company or an investment company, a fund that has very Western standards of performance, essentially and ways of moving you through time and space to, you know, to some extent. So how do you kind of like realize that it's like, yeah, I can do that, but where's the limitation when it brushes up against the demands of your platform or the demands of your entrepreneurial and business contacts and the agreements that you have? I think for me, that's that sort of two mindset, the schizophrenia of being a wilderness guide who lives in a timeless world. And then the New York City kid, I was born and raised here in New York, who can then go to the cultural touchstones of New York, you know, Broadway or theater or dinner parties where where so much relationship building is done. 
that was very hard for me as a teenager to remember going from like literally sleeping in the desert in Utah with the sagebrush and the sand. And then the next day I'm off Madison Avenue having meetings in quote fancy clothes. And it was not easy, but that ability to swing that far across that comfort zone range was an asset. And then when it comes to my work in documentary and storytelling, that skill set translates to I now have to very quickly establish rapport with an expert, ideally before we're filming, ideally well in advance, right? We're setting these stories up weeks or months in advance. So they know what we're there for. Like right now, I'm leaving for Rwanda this week and I've already set up the experts and they know why I'm coming there and they know I'm spending my time and money. So they want to deliver something that works. But the dance itself, there can be accelerated versions of the dancing that honor the production needs. And I think having, again, to stretch that metaphor, having a good dancer, like I'm the lead dancer on camera, so to speak. So I'm going to hopefully find a rhythm with my expert in the storytelling on camera that allows them to feel like they can trust me and we'll move together in a graceful way. Sometimes the tempo may need to be accelerated <laughs> and they'll just have to trust me on that. It's like, I'm sorry, we only have an hour. You could talk for three days. This is what I need you to tell me. And I'm not being you know, hard about it or rude about it, but there's a firmness to any lead dancer who's going to say, look, listen to the music. I'm going to provide the music and the moves and we're going to do this dance. And that works more often than not. Brett, you have any thoughts? I think of it as sort of transitions and being hyper-present for whatever it is you're doing, right? So if I look at, you know, some of the places I've been in the past month, right? Yes, some of it is absolutely appropriate in this Western, hey, I've got exactly 30 minutes for this meeting and two minutes before the end of it, you need to remind people and you probably run one minute over just with, you know, Zoom and everything post-pandemic. And then there's that whole, hey, you're going to a foreign country, to build relationships with people that you've already kind of had some of that rapport building with, as Josh sort of said, and it being very important to have that buffer time or slack time, right? And I think sort of circling back, some we've talked about is the deepest collaborations, et cetera, come from those most meaningful conversations. And sometimes it's, if you cut something even 60 seconds too short or something, that's where you kind of really lose that power of what could have been the deepest connection. So for me, it's that transitional aspect is making sure that it's much of it's up here in your brain, right? Of saying, hey, I'm going from wherever it is to wherever I am. And yes, a lot of the time I'm in the same situation Josh is talking about where you're somewhere outside or an amazing mindset the next day you're in city. But sometimes I at least personally need a larger transition set, right? Like when we came off the Grand Canyon, it was eight days. It was hugely impactful for me. And I very intentionally turned the phone on, sent a couple of texts that said, hey, I'm alive. I need some time. Turned it right back off again. Went to the ocean for the better part of a day. Eased back in off of that flow state so that I could then kind of reaccelerate in a different world. But that was also sort of a unique, very special experience for me. And I wanted to honor that and give myself that time. So guys, I've noticed throughout this conversation and a little bit on our chat beforehand and in your bios, you guys are really good on um, transcending kind of secular understanding of boxes and hold your categories in a permeable manner to some extent. In particular, I noticed that both Josh and you, Brett, have created platforms, kind of these fully like mixed hybrid platforms, either in Josh's case, it seems like kind of this vertically integrated platform that's grabbing from here to here 
And Brett, you talk about combining kind of business and entrepreneurship and philanthropy and nonprofit. And there tends to be kind of this blended value for you guys. And, you know, I just, I'm 51 now. And it feels like for the, up until I was about 35, I really took a lot of these categories literal in life in the secular world. And it's like, oh, this is the way this is supposed to be. This is the way this is supposed to be. And I always admired people like you that were out kind of blending stuff, but I never had kind of the confidence to do it until later in life, a, a certain amount of events happen. One, was there a moment in your life where you realized like, shit, all this disciplinary mentality where like, uh, no, I'm an anthropologist. No, I'm a business where you like shit can that is like, no, I'm all of these and I will bring this to the scene and use and feature whatever I want to. And then how do you transform that into actually a platform like you guys have done and actually communicate it to people who don't think or think mostly in buckets, right? And so has there been a little bit of friction and aggravation along the way on trying to explain your guys' platforms given how you guys blend things? So I would say absolutely yes, right? And to kind of answer a couple of your questions in there, you know, I used to be a lot more black and white before some personal circumstances earlier this year that kind of said to me, you know what, you don't need all these frameworks. The most beauty and connection and collaboration comes when you can be in the gray, right? And some of the things we've talked about of, hey, you can be perfectly comfortable on a plane today in this meeting tomorrow out in the wilderness the next, right? As far as the organization goes, I very intentionally designed Howl Conservation Fund the way I did because I'd seen what from my lens worked and didn't work in the business world, the philanthropic world, and the nonprofit world. I talked to a lot of experts and at the end of the day, they said, yes, you can absolutely do it this way. It's perfectly legal. You're allowed to do it. There just haven't been a lot of people that have tried it. And it was through that design with intention that we were able to really punch above our weight class, if you think about it that way, in terms of what we can do as an organization. And it's hard to believe, but we've just hit, you know, this summer was our five-year mark as an organization. And what was so cool is that we did sort of a five-year review with our board. And my original theory was right. And it's more that we've kind of slightly adjusted how we talk about it in terms of audiences, so they understand it better, right? And because we sit in these unique aspects, I can be on a podcast like I am with you, or I can be on stage last week talking from an investor lens, or I can be able to be at a philanthropic conference and talking through that lens, right? So it gives you, I think, a much richer way of talking about things. And you can either go incredibly deep if it's somebody who really understands all of that, or you can focus on the lane that somebody understands. But for us, I wanted to have one entity. We wanted to have a one-stop shop for impact. And we've been fortunate to have the opportunity to play with it and figure out how to talk about it. So That's well said. Thanks, Brett. I, I will echo almost all of what you said, Brett. I will take one detour or maybe just a tangent. I think the, the black and white aspect and the gray areas, I prefer to look at life as a rainbow. And so, you know, I appreciate sometimes being in the red and sometimes dropping over to the green and then popping back to the yellow. And, and why limit myself to just one color? I consider myself for the three people listening who understand human design. I'm a manifesting generator and I like to have my fingers in a lot of different projects because it just makes me feel better. I know that there are folks who are like, no, 
monoculture. I do this really well. I'm red, pure red, all red all the time. Great. That's not me. And so I've created an ecosystem in my business world and my life that supports that diverse interest. So that First Light, you know, the First Light brand, as Brett was saying, under Howell Conservation, for me, for me, First Light is the umbrella under which I have First Light Studios, the production company, First Light Education, the pedagogy education group, First Light Foundation, the not-for-profit, and they work in harmony. And like eventually there's First Light Expeditions and First Light Institute. Like I built a robust infrastructure to allow me to play in the full colors of the rainbow as I evolve and explore what, like this week I'm off to Rwanda to film rhinos. Yay, that's fun. And then I come back and I focus on my work with NASA. And then next year it's on oceans and climate storytelling. So I don't want to be limited. The process is almost the same, but the opportunity to engage with different topics is for me the spice of life. Mm, That's well said. See, as we get close to summing up our time together, I want to give you guys a moment. Obviously, there's things that I brought up, but there's also things that I didn't bring up, things that may have come up for you that didn't have the space for expression in terms of the rhythm and the pacing and the cadence. So if you would like to take a moment, if there's something you'd like to share in addition to how people can learn more about Josh and Brett, your guys' activities, now's a good time to share those. If I can kick this one off, Brett, I think the one piece that I alluded to earlier, but we didn't we didn't go there, is on this notion of consciousness in an era of increasing technological bombardment and sort of losing our footing for our humanity. How do we restore that? And I think that the growing awareness of psychedelics and plant medicines is, according to some, the silver bullet. Right? That could potentially be the salvation that allows us to catch up with our technology through spiritual growth and deepening our our own sense of self. I think you can only love externally as much as you love yourself internally. And there's nothing like, and I speak from, again, this is not my public persona. My work with NASA or the networks has never been on psychedelics, save for perhaps one story I did on San Pedro for History Channel in in Shabin de Wantar. But most of my work journeying has been off camera for the past 20 years and may come out next year as First Light, my foundation and group, comes because the the origin of the, even the name first light has to do with this notion of consciousness and being that light in the world find, helping people find their own light so i would say that if people are interested in storytelling around consciousness and how indigenous cultures and the wisdom of their relationships with plants is interesting then yeah that would be good for folks to know that that'll be coming out next year firstlight.org is my website for folks who want to learn more and have a conversation Oh, that's very exciting. Yeah. A lot of our followers, a lot of people listen to this are interested in plant medicine, alternative forms of consciousness that are stuck on the margins for whatever good or bad reason. But thanks for bringing that to our attention for sure. Yeah. I appreciate that, Josh and Gino. It's been a fantastic conversation. You know, for me, it's really about what we've already been covering here, right? It's how do you be your authentic self across everything you're working on? And Extremely excited that I have the opportunity to go back to Henderson Island in 2024. It sort of came full circle because I had an opportunity to talk about it with many on the Grand Canyon in September. And a beautiful opportunity came up through that approach to deep collaboration to return and help lead this expedition in 2024 with a French nonprofit called Plastic Odyssey. So heading to Ecuador next week for expedition planning and to see their custom expedition vessel for the first time. And we'll be off to Henderson in February. So if you want to find out more about it, our website is Howell Conservation, H-W-E-L-L, the word conservation.org. And we'd love to figure out how to partner and collaborate. Brett, Josh, thank you so much. And 
to the listeners. You know, I just want to summarize one thing is, is that, I mean, both Josh and Brett have shared a lot here. And I realize how much has not been shared because usually toward the end of a conversation, I'm still like kind of winding it down. And I often write a bunch of notes while I'm holding these conversations and my page is still full of stuff. And I take that as both of these guys are full of life, full of affirming life, full of focusing on what the potential and the capacity is for life, and most importantly, sharing those opportunities with others so we can all share in the affirmative moment of being present and being compassionate and being supportive of each other. So Josh and Brett, thank you so much for that. Thanks, Gina. Thank you, Gina. Hey, everyone. Thanks again for listening in to today's conversation on the poetry of impact. The podcast exists for and because of listeners like you. Be sure to subscribe to the Poetry of Impact podcast on your favorite podcast player. And if you have time, leave us a review. Thanks again and goodbye for now. Till next time. Thank you for listening to the Poetry of Impact podcast. For show notes and additional resources, visit poetryofimpact.com.